You know what, before I, uh, before I utter another word, let us welcome in God in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, we take this precious time this morning to come before you, Lord, in corporate worship, in corporate praise and fellowship. God, we ask for your spirit to be amongst us, to be in us, to dwell in this very place so that we can experience you right here, right now. God, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that whatever is to be spoken today will lift, encourage, and bless those who hear it, whether now or later in the recordings, Lord. So we bless you, we lift you up, and the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Again, thank you guys uh, so much for being here this morning. Before I get started, I I just want to make a couple of real quick personal comments to all of you. Last week, um, I shared part three of our message, Um, but the one who really stole the show is, I think, Alex. And not for his own glory or ours, but for God's glory. Alex heroically shared something that was deeply personal to him and deeply personal to our family, something that was and still is very difficult for our family to deal with and manage every day. But I wasn't surprised. And you guys didn't disappoint me. You were exactly who I expected all of you to be. You guys encouraged and received Alex in a way that I know our Emmanuel family to do. And it blessed us. So I just want to say thank you for allowing my family and I to be vulnerable to allowing and for allowing my family and I to be transparent, for allowing us to be human. We can't say thank you enough. It is our hope, it is our intention, it is our great desire that we give you all that we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that you can be all that you can be for God. So I just want to thank you guys for that so much. Thank you guys. So we're continuing today on part four, which is the last part of this series, which I hope up to this point has been encouraging, has been a blessing to you in hearing this message and how we've read these various accounts in the Gospel of Luke of how Jesus takes bread into his hands and he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. And over the past few weeks, it's been kind of difficult. We've been learning, and sometimes it is challenging to see our own ordinary and seemingly insignificant lives uh, as actually being blessed and sacred and holy. We explored how our sin and our suffering sometimes makes us feel like our brokenness actually disqualifies us from having something to offer in the kingdom of God. 
But yet, when we surrender ourselves to Jesus, our lives actually become the bread in his hands. And we're blessed by having our identity recovered, having our identity restored, and having our brokenness become openness to the grace of God. But there's one more word, one final word in this series that I want to explore with you today. And that's the word given. But what if you feel like you've got nothing to give? What if you feel like maybe I have nothing to offer? And maybe you feel that way today because you feel that your purpose is directly connected to your value. And some of you really don't feel valuable today. And we're asking this question, and this is what we're going to explore today. We ask this question that if I'm just some ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill Christian, what really could I possibly have to give or offer the church or anyone in general? I'm just an average Joe. I want to explore this question with you today. So I want you to open your text. So grab your Bibles or your electronic Bibles, whatever you have. We're going to do a nice chunk of scriptural reading you guys love. You know I love to dive into the Word, and today we're going to read a good chunk of scripture. We're going to be in the final chapter of Luke today. We're going to be in Luke 24. I want to explore the text together, and I want to read starting in verse 13. We're going to read 13 to 35 today. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Whatever you have is just fine. It'll get us to the same place. Amen. I hear some of you flipping, so I'll give you another second. Again, Luke uh, chapter 24, the last chapter in Luke. We're going to read from starting at verse 13. And it reads... Thank you, Lord, for the reading and revelation of your word. Amen. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you were exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel indeed beside all this it is the third day since these things happened but also some woman among us amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that 
they had seen a vision of angels who, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes, they, or, I'm sorry, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found, found gathering together the eleven and those who were with them, saying their experience, relating rather their experience on the road and how he recognized, he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Lord. Now, that was a lot of reading, and we're going to take some time today to break that down, and every bit of it is relative to our discussion today. Now, this is the third time in the text, in the Gospel of Luke, that we have seen this account, this blessed, broken, and given. This is the third time Jesus takes into his hand the bread, and he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. But this was a moment of mission. This is Jesus breaking the bread in order to open the eyes of the people who were let down and those who were discouraged. In a way, this story shows that blessed, broken, and given, us being that, is for the sake of the world, not just for ourselves, not just for the church. But what does it mean to be given? I think that's the question we have to start with today. Now, I think there are several layers to this, and I could probably spend a whole prime time talking about this. But I'm going to give you, I think, three points, three takeaways today that I want to highlight. So if you have your uh, handouts that they gave you when you walked in to make sermon notes, or if you have a notepad, I would encourage you to jot down these bullet points today and reflect on them later. So what does it mean to be given? To be given is to be spent out of love for Jesus. That's our first point today. But before we even go that far, before we even talk about this today, I want to talk about and ask the question, why? Why are we given? Why do we allow ourselves to be given to others? And some of you might be thinking right now, it's obvious. We give ourselves out of love. That, that seems obvious. That's the obvious answer. It's out of love. But 
I want to take it one step further. What do we love in order for us to become given? What do we love? Now, that answer might seem obvious as well. We love the thing that we're giving ourselves to. All right? I'll give you an example. If you're a parent, your object of your love is your children, and so therefore you give yourself to your children. Or maybe it's a purpose. Maybe your love or your giving is in service to the homeless, so the object of your love is your love of service to those who are poor or in need. But I don't think that's quite right. I think that if we examine this a little closer, I think you'll see that this way of thinking is wrong or incomplete. It's fragmented at best. And let me help you unpack this a little bit because it might seem like what I just explained to you is the obvious. I give because therefore I I love. I love my children. I love my mission. I love my purpose. And so that's why I do what I do. But it is not enough to sustain you. Your love for that thing, that purpose, that mission, that calling is not enough to sustain you. It is not enough to carry you through the dark nights and the lonely hours of whatever that person or thing is. It's not enough. It won't push you through the pain. That love won't get you through the hurt that we will inevitably or you already have experienced when you're trying to help that very one that you're trying to love. It happens. If you don't believe me, let me give you some scriptural context. Why don't you go to John with me really quick? We're going to read three short passages. Go to John chapter 21 with me this morning. If you don't believe me, that the love for the purpose, the love for the person, the love for the calling, whatever it is, it's just not enough to sustain you through those dark hours. Let's read what happened to Peter. I want to read verse 15 through 18 really quickly, and then we'll dissect this a little bit. John 21, we're going to read verse 15 through 18. Watch what, what happens here. Starting in verse 15, it says, When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. See, after the resurrection, I want you all to catch this because this is really important. Now, this is after Jesus was risen, after the resurrection, Peter went back to fishing. Now, I want you all to think about that for a moment, and that might 
go right over your head. But Peter just spent the last three and a half years experiencing the glory and power of God. He's seen Jesus make things that no one else could make happen, even seen people raised from the dead. He saw demons cast out of people. He literally saw God working and manifesting himself throughout the land. This is the same guy who ran to the tomb, the same guy who saw that it was empty. He was most likely one of the other disciples who was there when Jesus first appeared to them, and he was probably there when Thomas put his hands in the scars of Jesus. This guy, after experiencing all of that, went back to fishing. After all of that, Jesus was just not really top of mind for him. And maybe it was because he felt like that that night that he denied Jesus three times, that he denied knowing him, maybe he felt like he lost it all. Maybe Peter was just confused about what the resurrection really meant. Maybe, just maybe, whatever it meant, Peter was too covered in shame for what had just happened for any of that to even matter. You might as well just live a quiet life, live a smaller story than what God had intended for you. But in this text, what we also saw was that there was a moment in this text where John hears a voice. And it, John in this text, he describes how while they were in the boat, when they were out fishing, they heard a voice. Now, I like this. This was earlier in chapter 21. I love this because these, 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 the, the, few of the 12 were in the boat and they were fishing. They were fishing all night long. They caught nothing and they hear a voice from shore. Hey, cast your net to the other side, the voice says. You'll catch something on the other side. Just throw your net over there. John and Peter both recognized the voice but only John realized that it was Christ. But Peter, Peter responded, whereas John only recognized. Peter responded, but what Peter responded radically. Now, y'all got to catch this because it says that he had his inner garments, and he, it said that he threw his outer garments on and he jumped out of the boat and swam to shore. I don't know about y'all, but I don't think that I'm ready for a hundred yards swim. And it says that he swam a hundred yards to shore, leaving his friends with this big fish, leaving it all behind. Now, there's a lot of different explanations and a lot of nuances and shifts in the word choices about what Jesus and the disciples were exchanging in this text and this scripture. But the point of all of it is, is that in this text, Jesus is reinstating Peter. In this text, he's reaffirming for Peter his purpose, his calling, and his destiny. And in this three repetitious questions, they were meant to correspond to Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. The most significant thing about this whole passage is actually hiding in the text in plain sight. What do I mean by this, guys? 
in this restorative, call-renewing conversation, Jesus in this text very simply, very repetitively, and very piercingly asks a question. Now, I'm getting to a point here, so, so stay with me. Jesus says, do you love me? Jesus didn't ask, guys. He didn't ask, do you love the sheep? He didn't ask, do you love the food, meaning his teachings? He didn't ask, do you love yourself? He didn't say, do you love your purpose? He didn't say, do you love your calling or your mission? He simply said, do you love me? The, the other gospel accounts of Peter's first call to Jesus where Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you a fisherman of, of men, You might say that his first calling was about purpose. His first calling was about Peter's kind of mission in it all. But Jesus said in in the big scheme of things, in that very first calling, he says, Peter, I'll lift you out of a life that seems like it's heading nowhere. Now watch this. Jesus says, I'm going to sweep you up in the greatest story ever written. I'm going to sweep you up in the greatest story that has been known to man. He says, I'll give you a role in the kingdom of God arriving on earth as it is in heaven. He says, I'll make you a participant, not just a recipient. Mm. I'll make you a participant, not just a recipient. Isn't that what being given is all about being a participant, not just sitting by idly and just watching it all happen. But it isn't the love of being given that leads to givenness. It just isn't. It isn't the love of purpose that can sustain us because in the end, if you notice, as I described to you in great detail, the love for the purpose, the love for the mission wasn't enough to keep Peter faithful. And he saw more than we could ever possibly imagine, and it couldn't keep him faithful. The love of a calling will never keep you from falling. I want to say that again because I want that to sink in. (laughs) I think my elders and the leaders in this room understand this intimately, that the love of a calling will never keep you from falling. If Peter's first call was about purpose, then Peter's second call was a renewal of destiny and identity. It was about a person. Peter's second calling was not about a purpose. It wasn't about an identity that he had. His second calling was simply about a person, the person of Jesus. He said, do you love me? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him over everything else in your life? Because I'll be honest with you, lesser loves, and many young Christians and those of you coming into your own in Christ uh, may understand this, a lesser love may lead you to following Jesus. A lesser love may even lead you into the vocation of ministry, but I can promise you that a lesser love will never, ever sustain you. 
the love of uh, mission, of purpose, the love of a meaning, or the love of mission will never keep you surrendered, and it will never keep you serving. Ever. Full stop. Ever. Only a deep and abiding love in he who is eternal, he who is Christ, can help you stay the course. And so if our love for Jesus will lead us to surrender in him, then it is Jesus who gives us away to others. We surrender out of our love for him, and we surrender, when we surrender, we find ourselves no longer being beggars. When we surrender, we find ourselves no longer having to wait for scraps. We surrender, and now we become he who is given. We become the person who is now the bread of Christ that is given for the life of the world. Second point today. I'm going to write this down. To be given is to live for the life of the world. Now, in this text, while they were on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples, we find them here. They were walking along. They were sad. They were disappointed. They were disillusioned. And they were just outright discouraged. They hung their heads low, and I can almost imagine them having walked this with Jesus all this time, thinking Jesus was the promise, thinking Jesus was the one, and then watching him be crucified and dying and laying in the tomb. It's the third day. We hear this chatter, and we're talking amongst ourselves. We're unable to quench this, this fear we're unable to quench this disappointment. And I, maybe if you spend some time reading the text, I think you'll feel this and you'll see this in the passage, that they were so disappointed they turned to each other in comfort. And they're trying to figure this thing out. They're talking about this Jesus, this Messiah, and what happened and what they think should have happened. And then it happens. In that moment, Jesus arrives and join them on their journey. That's in verse 15. Check it out. Jesus joined them in their disappointment. He joined them in their disillusion and on their journey. But you know what I noticed in the text? Jesus didn't say, hey, come over here. Jesus didn't say, come with me. Jesus didn't say, hey, 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 come follow me. He didn't say that at all. That was all well and good for the first time. That was well and good for the first calling, but now it's different. This time, that just won't do. Because when your faith has been shattered, when all hope seems lost, hey, come here, just won't do. And so we see here that these men, they were too weak, just like us, guys, you got to connect this. There are times where we too, our faith is broken, our faith is shattered, our all hope seems lost, and quite frankly, and we think we're bad Christians, and we're not. We're just too weak to get there. 
We don't have any more strength to make our way to God. And what I love that the scripture reveals to us, guys, is that he comes to us. He joins us on our journey in the midst of our brokenness. So, here, so here's what we got to do. I need you all to hear this. As a, as a church, as individuals, and as a church body, we need to listen and we need to learn. And then we need to enter, just like Jesus did in this text, we need to listen and learn, and then we need to enter into the places of pain in our community, just like Jesus did. Jesus, he listened, he knew what was going on, and he listened, he acted like he didn't know what was going on, but he listened, he was learning what was there, what was on their heart, Jesus knew it all, right? But he entered into their pain. And what Jesus does, just like he did these men, what he does is he comes alongside of us, the disillusioned, the brokenhearted, he comes alongside us, and just like Jesus, here's what we gotta do. We gotta walk gently in the spaces and places where the unchurched, the dechurched, and the post-Christians, where they walk. We have to walk gently in those places and meet them on their journey, just like Jesus met these disciples on theirs. But all of it, as Jesus was talking, what was he doing? Jesus was pointing all of Scripture to himself. He was drawing all of their attention to what the Scripture saw as the culmination of God's salvation story. He asked them as they were walking and they were uh, uh, having this conversation. He says, hey, hey, guys, what are you talking about? They explained to them and Jesus acted ignorant as if he knew not what was going on. They said, where you been? Haven't you been around this last week, this last three days, when all of this has been happening? Have, are you living under a rock? Can you believe they kind of said this to Jesus? Are you living under a rock? Where have you been? And Jesus began to explain to them all about what was written about himself in the law and in the prophets. He gave it all. He says, guys, didn't you read in the scripture that the Messiah was supposed to suffer? Don't you remember in reading in the scripture that he was supposed to be raised up? This is what was written. See, these disciples, just like we have a tendency of doing, they were misreading and misunderstanding the Scripture. And before they could recover from a paradigm shift that Jesus was helping them to realize, he gave them another. Jesus here went even further, and he showed them how the Scripture spoke all about him. Here's what we got to do, guys. We got to find a way. Because Jesus, what he did was, he retold the story of himself in a different way. He gave them something different. Here's what we got to do. We have to take the story, because this was their story. This was the story of the disciples. This was their message. And he gave it to them in a different way that opened their eyes like never before. Guys, we have to take the story of our families, the stories of our communities, the story of this church, and we have to retell it in a way that has never been told before through the lens of Scripture in a more beautiful and a more Christ-centered way than they have ever heard their story before. And then they reached where they were going. They had reached Emmaus, 
And Jesus acted like he was moving on. All right, guys, I'll see you later. And he stopped. Jesus wanted to see if they were curious enough, if they were awake enough, if they were uh, hungry enough to see exactly who he was. And so he waited and he kept walking. Hey, 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 why don't you stay with us? It's almost, it's almost nighttime, like the day's almost over. Why don't you just come in and stay with us? The day's almost over, they said. It was the hospitality to a stranger that was a game changer. Their hospitality to this man who they couldn't see was the Lord. A complete stranger to them was an absolute game changer. Jesus then demonstrates, guys, in the text, a kind of radical hospitality like we haven't seen. And Jesus walks in. He accepted their offer. He says, okay, I'll, I'll go with you guys. And then the stranger does something even stranger. And y'all might be asking, what is he talking about? Jesus was a guest here. He was invited to come with them. Jesus, the guest, because begins acting like the host. Now, when you guys read that text, it might go whew, right over your head. And you want to know why that is? Because in our Western eyes, we don't have meal protocols anymore. But in Jewish culture, they did. In antiquity, in Jewish culture, they had meal protocol. And a host would be the one responsible and exclusively the one responsible for offering the blessing at a table. And look what Jesus does. Jesus sits down at this table and he acts like he owns it. Jesus steps in and he acts like this is his table. He grabs the bread. And he just starts blessing it. He acts like this is his. And, and I think that Luke deliberately records this. I think he deliberately is showing us a sequence again of what we saw in the Passover meal. And again, what we saw earlier in the Jesus feeding the thousands, the multitude. We see the sequence again where Jesus, again, he took the bread and he, he blessed it and he broke it and then he gave it. And then you know what happens next? The minute it was given, their eyes were opened. The moment Jesus gave it to them, their eyes were open. See, we have to, guys... We have to begin to offer a radical hospitality the way Jesus did. The way Jesus acted like he was the host of a table that he really was not. We have to find a way to reach out to those in the world that have these questions. We have to stand in the midst of the world, of our families, of our communities that have questions, that are in pain, in their midst of their disappointment, in the midst of their fear. We have to take the bread and bless it and break it and give it to them. We have to show a radical hospitality. See, when we ourselves become that bread, and we give ourselves, we give our lives, yes, our lives, we're giving it for the world. It's not really 
for us. Here's my third point, and we're almost done. The idea, the concept of being given continues in this circle of grace. There's a cyclical nature, if you will, to being given. I'll explain to you what I mean. There's a kind of cycle to this givenness, um, and I should say that giving begets giving. See, the, self, uh, the selfless giving of God should and must generate our giving to others. And it seems like God did this by design. It seems like God intended for this to be, but does that make God's design not quite right? Does it make it impure? Does a true gift from someone need to be one that there's no strings attached? Isn't that how we think? Like when we give, there shouldn't be strings attached. We give and we think that there shouldn't be anything that we expect in return. That's how we think. So we think, well, maybe that the way God has it, that's not quite right. And in our Western minds, it seems kind of silly. It seems kind of coercive and it seems maybe even manipulative. And then we ask, shouldn't we give with no strings attached? How many would agree with that? You give with no strings attached. Okay, there's a handful of you that, that believe that, and that's okay. I want to offer you something different today, though, because I think we're deceiving ourselves when we think giving with no strings attached is the biblical and kind of God-centered way. I want to offer you a different perspective in that, and this is this paradigm shift because I think thinking in that capacity fails to understand the way reciprocity really works. It fails to capture it because reciprocity is not giving to get. That's not how reciprocity works. Reciprocity is a way to reinforce relationships. It's a way to help strengthen relationships. And you know what? We actually discover this early in life. If you don't believe me, think back to when you were a child. You were playing with your friends. They let you use one of their toys. Didn't you feel as a child, okay, well, I, I should give, let them use one of my toys too. It's a way to reinforce relationships. Or maybe you got an invitation to someone's birthday party you're probably going to feel some kind of commitment to want to give them one too, wouldn't you? That's how reciprocity works. It's about a building of a relationship. And so let's take it to the Bible. I gave you kind of a social, cultural example, but let's take it to the Scripture. Look at the Old Testament for an example. As just as an example, love for one's neighbor was the way in the Old Testament you demonstrated your love for God. If God showed you great uh, blessing, he gave you a bumper crop and he blessed your livestock and they were big in abundance, the way you demonstrated love back to God, the way you showed them was to do what? Care for those who had less. That is the biblical idea of reciprocity of giving. You gave to the poor to return the blessings back to God. I'll give you another scripture to reinforce this idea. Proverbs 19, 17. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. 
and he will repay him for his deeds, Proverbs 19, 17. This is why generations later, Jesus could say that as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. That's Matthew 24, 45. At the heart of the gospel, my friends, is grace. It is a free gift that should, that must provoke giving. God is gracious. Can I get an amen? Amen. God is gracious. God is good. God gives gifts to those of us who are unworthy, myself included. We're all unworthy of the amazing grace and gift of God. And to those who receive such great gifts in abundance from God, you are to return them upward in praise and outward, my friends, in service. We're about to close, and I'm going to ask, uh, I have a few more remarks to make. Um, I want to ask Elder Dino to, to begin to make his way up. He's going to offer us uh, today our benediction today. And grace, my friends, follows a pattern of reciprocity that was common in the gift-giving practice of the ancient world with two distinct exceptions. First is that God's grace is given to the unworthy. There is not one of us who is fit or worthy to receive that which God graciously lavishes on us. Second, God's grace is meant to generate a reciprocity in an ever-widening circle, benefiting those who are even outside of the fold. That was his intention for Israel, for them to benefit even those outside of the fold. That is his intention for the new community, Jews and Gentiles alike. Grace begets grace. Giving begets giving. And as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, he says, freely you receive, freely give. The givenness of Jesus, he who is the bread of life, it is so vividly detailed in the gospel of John, makes our giving as a church, the body of Christ, even possible. And so church, this amazing community of faith. My challenge to you, that is God has selflessly given himself to us. My challenge to you today is that you do whatever you can to be given to your friends, your family, and the community at large. For God brought us together as a people who are given for one another and for the sake of the world. So, in view of God's mercy, my questions to you are this as I close. Will you offer yourself to Christ today? Will you let Jesus send you into the world as the Father first sent him? Will you ask him to give you life and give you for the life of the world? 
I ask you those questions today as we close. I ask you this week to pray, to think about, to examine the text that we reviewed today and look at your life as bread in the hands of Jesus, blessed, broken, and given. Thank you very much.